Welcome to Zealots at the Gate, a podcast from Comet Magazine, in which we explore deep religious and political differences. I'm Matthew Kamink, and with me is my friend and co-host, Shadi Hamid. Together, we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at the Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life at Fuller Seminary. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen, and please leave us a review. Um, and feel free to con- connect with us at zealots at comment.org. Now, over to Shadi. Yeah, so Matt and I are good friends, but that said, maybe we shouldn't be because Matt's Christian, I'm Muslim, Matt's conservative, I'm liberal, I guess. Matt's white, I'm brown-ish. Matt studies theology, I'm a political scientist by training, and we don't usually get along those two sides. Matt's from the rural Northwest, and I'm from the urban Northeast. So our identity markers are somewhat divergent, but here we are, and we like talking about deep difference. Shadi, we should talk also about how you are part of the elite while I am part of the people. Oh, yeah, you're a common man. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've heard about you guys. Um, So, yes, I I am unfortunately a member of of the elite, and I live in an elite enclave in D.C. I am also, in this case, uh, outnumbered by two Christians. So we, we have a very special treat for all of you today. We have a guest. We have James Wood, who's with us right now. He's an assistant professor of ministry and theology at Redeemer University. He's also ordained as a pastor. And um, he, is, he has become really a rising star on... <laughs> no, it's true. A rising star on the right side of the spectrum when it comes to... Sorry, maybe I shouldn't say that. I actually don't know how to describe you. Let me just... <laughs> <laughs> Cut that out. <laughs> Please don't. Okay, so let me, I'll, I'll just, yeah, yeah, I'll just, let me just continue. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so um, James, James is actually, he's become one of my favorite theologians to follow. Um, he's an excellent writer and will include some of his recent pieces in the show notes. And he's really become prominent for some of his controversial, sometimes even combative takes. But here we're going we're gonna to unpack all that and go deep on a question that is dear to Matt and I, which is the question of political doubt and how certain we should be about our political commitments. And actually, our previous episode, as you, our dear listeners, will know, was actually the case against political certainty and the dangers of not introducing doubt into our thought when it comes to both politics and religion. And James has written, I think, quite eloquently about the dangers or the risks of being too winsome when discussing religion and politics with people you disagree with. And, you know, we don't have to get into the whole winsomeness debate, but maybe, James, could you start us off by laying out how you've come to rethink your own winsomeness and how you converse with people who disagree with you. Yeah, so, so the, and, and I'll start it by saying the, the issue is not being too winsome, but the, the particular, I think, perils and proclivities of those who adopt that framework that I've observed, both in myself and, and in some of the people who would uh, appropriate the label uh, for themselves who have a prominent platform. I think some of these things are can be um, 
uh, analyzed uh, and are exhibited often. Um, but uh, I guess the, the way I've summarized winsomeness, and then we can get into what my thoughts are about it, is um, it, it, it's, it's been a kind of a posture towards cultural engagement that was um, really came, became prominent, I think, probably in the last 20 years, uh, articulated by uh, a, a, a great American pastor uh, and public theologian uh, named Tim Keller up in Manhattan, New York, who's had a very successful and fruitful ministry and whom I very much still admire, uh, even though people might not assume that. Uh, I, I try to convey that in my writings, even as I try to make a qualified critique of this. Uh, but uh, the way I've summarized kind of what it translates into is, well, before it translates into what it, I, I, how I would summarize it, is it's trying to maximize gospel openness by uh, minimizing offense. Um, and, uh, and then uh, where it trickles out into political engagement is, I think, often times being um, a little bit more nuanced and careful and uh, charitable towards positions from uh, kind of the the left side of the spectrum uh, that would t typically um, be uh, uh, representative of maybe secular coastal coastal elites, and then uh, punching a little bit harder, being uh, a little bit less nuanced and charitable towards positions on the right. And I think there's interesting, I, I try not to do, bull, I, I try to resist bulverisms at all costs. And so I try not to analyze motives. Um, I think you could, you could, uh, and so, but I, I, if you notice in my writings, I actually try to very, uh, very much avoid that. Um, and so I just try to look at tendencies. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's what I see. And, um, I noticed in my own heart. So I mentioned my first, first things piece where I talked about this. I really started to notice this in the 2016 election. I didn't vote for Trump either time, but I noticed that I had a certain hardness towards those who did. And I wanted to invest, investigate, interrogate that. What, what was that? Even if I disagreed with them, uh, what, 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 what did I want to, was there something wrong in my thinking and how did I end up there? So I don't blame Tim Keller or other people for that is how I appropriate the model. But I also over the years had started to notice similar things among people uh, who would say that they appropriate the Winston model, that they had similar um, tendencies. Uh, but I also, so what I've, what I've um, also said or how I kind of came to this place, maybe two interesting angles in is actually by becoming more familiar with the political activism and thought of people on the left. Uh, and, and it's one of the reasons why I, and not because I radically disagreed with them, but because I agreed with them. They convinced me on certain things. Hmm. So two, 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 two figures, uh, two, uh, yeah, two figures. One was in my, um, I'm trying to see which one would be better to begin with. One was just in my research, uh, in my doctoral studies on, uh, French Catholic thought in the, in the 20th century. And I, I studied and wrote on a figure named Honor de Lubac. We don't need to go into that unless we're interested later. But I came across one of his really close friends who was more to the left of him, Emmanuel Mounier. Uh, and he uh, helped uh, uh, articulate kind of the fundamental principles of, of uh, uh, personalism and then kind of trying to translate into that to a political movement in many ways. Uh, but he critiqued Christian Democrats in France of his day, which you could say are kind of like a third way because third my critique of third wayism goes with this. Uh, but he critiqued kind of the third way approach to politics and cultural engagement in his day. And he he called that movement uh, paraplegics of virtue. And he felt like uh, some of these ways of thinking inhibited their ability to act prudentially in, in the political order. And so uh, when I was reading, I was like, gosh, that's something I'm challenged by it. Uh, I'm, I'm challenged by that thought. Second, um, my in-laws, uh, and they, they would very much, they'd be glad to share this, they're, they're uh, they've been registered Democrats uh, for their entire life. 
uh, and they're uh, strongly uh, involved in political activism and, and, and promotion of, of the democratic platform. But we're very, very close. My father-in-law is a, a Episcopal priest and, and a, th- a theologian of sorts, and we're extremely close. Uh, but uh, I just noticed that, you know, throughout our whole relationship, he was very willing to uh, share with me his political opinions and did not care if I agreed with them or if it would ruffle my feathers. Mm. Uh, and and, and he, I, I presume that he trusted that we could get through it. We could actually, we could actually work through it. And we have, we're very, very close. But eventually I, I started to think like, why does he feel that freedom? And I don't, and is there something wrong? And, and I don't think it's just, I don't think it's a vice. I, I didn't view his, his approach as a vice. And, and so it, that made me start to revisit some, and I, I've actually shared with him some of my, cause he's so, so unfamiliar with it. He's not an evangelical. He's not, doesn't know Tim Keller and all those things. And I shared with him some of these critiques that I've had. He's like, you know, about, you know, approaching politics this way of, of you know, through the Winsome model. And he's like that, he just laughs at it. He thinks it's silly. Uh, he's like, who does that? You know? Um, and uh, he's and like, what's his fun? argument for why it's silly? Well, and so this is actually, actually working through this has helped us actually move closer to each other, even in, in the disagreement. He's like, politics is about justice. Like, I think you're wrong on justice issues. And like, so we need to work that out. And, and I'm like, actually, that's been really helpful for me because I think you're wrong on justice issues. And we, we but like now we're, we're operating with a similar terminology and, and it actually has enabled us to disagree really, really well. And, uh, and so he's like, he's like, I'm okay with ruffle your feather. That's okay because we're, we, these are big causes we should be pursuing. Uh, and we should be able to get past the niceties and the decorum a little bit. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I it doesn't mean divide. Yeah. Yeah, James, and I, if I can just jump in there, I think yeah, that right please. there is exactly what I, I've really come to appreciate about your work. You know, I've been I've been reading through a number of your articles. I listened to one of your lectures um, just this last week. <laughs> we'll we'll share some of those in the show in the uh, show notes um, for those who are interested. Um, but in many ways, you might say I'm a bit of a target of of what you've <laughs> been talking about. So I I was an intern for Tim Keller. Uh, within his church in New York. Yeah. I was a student of Richard Mao, who's written a lot about political civility. Um, yeah. I've talked about political hospitality. I've even used the rhetorical devices of a third way, um, critiquing um, right-wing nationalism and left-wing multiculturalism. So like in so many ways, I was the target of at least I felt like the target of that initial piece. And so naturally, um, my initial reaction to your piece was not positive. Um, but as I continued to dig into this, um, I, I grew in my affection for the things that you were talking about, even while I don't think I would ever articulate myself the way that, yeah. that you Good. have here. And we'll talk a little bit later about our uh, you know our differences, and I'm pretty sure Shaddy's going to try and pick a little fight between us. <laughs> but I think you're you're exactly right that many Christians in America um, who try to be nice politically fundamentally don't understand what politics is, yep, yep. in that it is a contest over different visions of justice and the good, and so fighting is. <laughs> actually like a sort of joyful debate is actually what politics is all about. And trying to avoid that um, really just kind of, it gets you into a, a destructive pattern of what might you might just call passive aggressive politics yeah, in which sure. you're nice, but in sort of underhanded sort of cynical ways, you, you make nods towards the people that you disagree with, but you don't directly engage their ideas. And that's 
I mean, I think if I had to name something that I really appreciate about your effort here this year is that you're saying, no, we need to directly contest one another. And that is part of what it means to love your neighbor. That's good. And so, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't even know what I'll pick. There's so many good things that I would want to tease out, but like I, Yeah, the, the, the frustrating thing about the third way thing is I still agree with it to a degree. I mean, and I've, I've mentioned that in multiple pieces uh, every time, almost every time I talk about it. There's an aspect of it that I agree with. It's like, as a Christian, uh, you can't uh, you can't have an uncritical association with any contemporary party. Um, and uh, we shouldn't be trying to divide our churches along political partisan lines. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, um, and uh, uh, but I, I think where, where I uh, get wary on it it, it, is it becomes a little bit too much of like a hegemonic framework of uh, where you even apply it to particular debates over particular issues. And, uh, and you kind of do kind of, you try to do a both sides on every can you, issue. Can you give us a, like a, a practical example of this? Yeah. So, I mean, how third way works for those, <laughs> for those who may not be familiar, you know, well, pick, the, um, the, the, let's take, let's take like abortion or something like yeah. walk us through how a third way or would do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that is the key one. And I mentioned that in the first things piece. Uh, and uh, though I, I love Keller, I think he had some missteps there. And, and unfortunately, when he had that famous, infamous Twitter thread on abortion, it came right before Dobbs released. And it's like, I think it was unfortunate timing for him. Um, but, uh, but okay, start with this. So the third way thing tends to, it can be summarized often with the little trope, neither left nor right, right? Uh, and that's why it does connect up with Christian democratic movements in the 20th century, because that actually was a pretty common uh, maxim, axiom for Christian democratic movements. And the American Solidarity Party would be a type of third way party. Uh, uh, and so anyway, but, but, gener- but getting away from parties, uh, how it applies often to just like discourse over issues is like you come to the abortion issue and a third way or often will be like, well, okay, so abortion, we think it's wrong. And yet neither party has a, has a proper approach to this. It doesn't capture all the aspects even uh, that we'd want to use to address this. And so, you know, the left is wrong. Uh, Democrats are wrong on this because they want abortion. Not only to, we've moved well beyond safe, legal, and rare to shout your abortion up to nine months, whatever, you know, codify road nationally is, is a major plank right now of Biden, uh, Biden's administration. Uh, and so, you know, that they're wrong there. Uh, but then the other side, you know, they'd say, okay, but the other side doesn't get it either because they don't really care about the poor. And they, we need to be thinking about like a whole life perspective. And the reason people have abortion is because, you know, uh, we don't have enough government funding uh, to, you know, and so it's, it's a, economic reasons. And so that sounds reasonable. And so it sounds reasonable. I, I, I'm not, exa- I'm not convinced that that's actually uh, explains most abortions. I think that often a little bit is a red herring. And, um, and so, and I often, I also don't think that uh, conservatives are calloused towards some of those issues. They might have other solutions. And so for instance, like, I would say I would still be a conservative on some of the answers to those things. Is like, how are we going to support the family? Why is the family not being promoted? Uh, and how are uh, liberal policies and platforms undermining the family? And so the, one of the reasons, reasons these women are in these situations is because we're not doing actually more enough fundamental conservative work uh, uh, on that issue. So anyway, and so you kind of speak out of both sides of your mouth being like, well, we can't really be confident that like the conservative answer here is the good one. And so you kind of under, I think oftentimes then it undercuts practical, uh, prudential, practical solutions in the interim, you know, until the eschaton, we're not going to have any perfect program, but what can we do now? Well, we can. 
Can so adults. you would basically you would like these these moderate Christians, these these third wares, these these people to pick a side and fight for it. You know, right or like if yeah. even if it's imperfect, just kind of pick a side and fight. It doesn't mean pick a side, meaning partisan. I mean, on, I'm talking even about particular issues. Yeah. Like so, just pick a side and articulate it confidently, boldly, uh, and. Uh, you don't have to speak out of both sides. You get into all these false moral equivalencies where you kind of like give equal time, airtime to the flaws and all of the options. And I think that undercuts the good that you can pursue. So I, I, I summarize one of the reasons why I think the winsome third way frame gets uh, into bad, silly territory is I, I think it has a fundamental wrong view of politics. Politics is not kind of maximizing openness for the gospel. It's about the prudential pursuit of justice. And so the prudential part's important for me. Uh, you know, I'm not a utopian. Uh, I'm not a millenarian, uh, but uh, I want to help people think practically, prudentially, and, and with the right ends in mind. Okay, so if we could just zoom out to some of the bigger conceptual issues here. Um, I think, and you can correct me if, if, if I'm wrong, James, but in some of your early writing, compared to some of the more recent <laughs> things that you've written, I do notice, and it's not a bad thing, I just think it's worth interrogating what's going on there is more certainty and confidence in your writing. It's bold. It is combative and combative shouldn't be seen as a pejorative word because sometimes democracy requires peaceful intellectual combat between competing conceptions of the good. These yeah. are not minor issues. These, are, these go to the very heart of what makes us different and why we disagree on fundamental questions regarding religion, the state and so forth. But do you, and you, you did give a speech, which I read in full, um, to the National Conservatism <laughs> Conference. And that was, that was more of speaking to an audience that is already going to be predisposed to your views. Yeah. And it was more of like a, like a, a rallying call. You were just there and you were going to arouse the masses out of their slumber. And I'm wondering... <laughs> Do you think there is a risk of too much confidence and too much certainty that if you decide to be the happy warrior in some of these contested debates, mm -hmm. that there's a risk of losing the doubt that can temper certainty? Yeah, and, and I'll just kind of add to that a little bit in that, like I said, I thought you made a really wonderful point about the dangers of trying to be winsome and mm -hmm. the dangers of trying to build connections and bridges that can, if if you make that your goal, that can shape and form you in bad ways. And I, I have no problem with that. But related to what Shetty's talking about, isn't there also a formative danger in being the happy warrior where um, you, you're out there to fight? Like, isn't isn't engaging in political battle also, um, uh, you know, endangering you in in sort of being shaped by the the medium? Well, that's an interesting, different question. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm very uh, one of the reasons why I've felt you know I'll kind of lax theological about it a little bit is uh, maybe in God's providence. Uh, it made sense for me to jump into some of this is, is my grounding in, for instance, like Delubach's work and, and kind of relativizing politics. Cause I still relativize politics in my own thinking. Um, uh, I've only kind of jumped into this conversation because 
uh, it's kind of been thrust upon me. I, to be honest, just one little side note is I, I really had no idea that that first article would do all of this. I mean, I've written more provocative pieces even before that. I mean, I wrote on wokeness when it was still kind of unsafe to write on wokeness and uh, at public discourse and in and, and places and, uh, and critical theory before, you know, that was a little bit less safe. And so, but I just, I think a lot of these kind of conversations that I've taken upon have been like, I'm having conversations in back channels and, and, and things like that. And people seem to be really concerned and confused. And I felt like, okay, I have something that has proven to be a little bit helpful uh, in converse, helping them think through these things. Is it worth putting into publication? Uh, and so, uh, but yeah, then that piece blew up and now I guess I'm the anti-Winsome Crusader. And, uh, but I, and I hope to move on from that but, um, uh, and go back to other things. But okay, so the, but the danger. So I, I mentioned the Dulubak thing. Is I do I really care about the danger of putting politics at first in your in your mindset, and and so and I, I very much want to help Christians not only think clearly about politics but deabsolutize it um, and uh, and to ground. I, I my wrote my just my dissertation is on Henri uh, Dulubak's view of the church as sacrament and how that reframes a political imagination to uh, to. Primary lo- primarily locate your social life and identity in the church. Um, and uh, and so I, I do want to resist the absolutizing. And for instance, like Rashadi and I have, have agreed in, in previous conversations, is uh, I absolutely believe, and, and I've challenged my friends on the right, of like, look, you have to accept election results, for instance. Like that, that's in one way of, of de-absolutizing your, your attempt to win. Like you have to be able to lose. As well, like I just want, I want to help Christians not be pietistic and therefore like undercut the actual pursuit of winning, but I, I don't want them to to not uh, be willing to lose, and so we have to be willing to lose, and and I agree with that. Um, it seems to me your your push to those who are trying to be winsome in a, in political spaces, those who are trying to build bridges, your push on them is um, it can direct them in ways they ought not go. And uh, I'm asking you to reflect on the opposite danger of um, joyfully engaging in the battle um, Mm -hmm. might end up directing us in ways that we might not go as well. So I take take your push, you know, from my side of the aisle, um, but I ask it back to you about, you know, isn't there um, (laughs) engaging in – in Twitter battling and Twitter mockery and Twitter, you know, hmm. back and forth, uh, does that not also take us places we, we should not go as, as Christians? Yeah. And as citizens, we could just say more broadly. Yeah. So, uh, gosh, there's a lot. And then Shadi's point was about certainty too. So I don't remember, I don't want to forget about yeah. that. Yeah, and so that's one of the reasons I, I mentioned I locked up my Twitter account because it actually that's that's part of actually an ascesis of sorts to pull back a little bit uh, in my own life because I don't want it to consume me and uh, I, I I stayed on and got more a lot more active once the pieces were first coming out and people were responding to the ideas and realizing that I want to pull back a little bit more than previously and so I I recognize that temptation um, and I'm and actively trying to think about what my role is. and I also recognize different callings as well. Um, not everybody, I don't, what I'm promoting and some of this stuff is not that everybody needs to engage at the same level. Um, but some people are like, if some people have training and gifts, like, you know, Christian theology of the gifts is that they're not to terminate upon yourself, but to be used for the blessing of others. 
And so if, if there's something there that you can contribute to the current state of discourse, I think you, you have a sense of, there's a sense of calling to that. And so some of this I've felt, but I'm not promoting that everybody engaged in the same way. And, and the mockery question is interesting because I actually don't engage in much mockery and I'm actually pretty reticent about it. Um, and uh, my friend, pa uh, Brendan Case, has written a great little essay on Pascal and his kind of apologetic for the place of mockery in, in, in Christian um, well, nice. and I bring I bring up that word mockery because you you yeah. did discuss it in in yeah. one of the lectures that I jumped into, and yeah. actually you made a a qualified argument that yeah. Christians should engage in public mockery of their opponents, and that really caught my attention because yeah. <laughs> I had never yeah. <laughs> considered that to be an option for a Christian citizen <laughs> to engage in mockery. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not just going to let you kind of get away yeah. with that. So, yeah, you know, go ahead, James. Well, I'll, why, I'll tell why should Christians engage in mockery? Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll. Well, okay. So maybe I'll start with this: is uh, it's better than engaging in physical violence? Uh, that's one, one thing. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> and. Uh, that's, but that also is actually part of Brendan's argument in his in his essay, which I encourage your audience to go read. Uh, and uh, he gives he gives six rules uh, inspired by Pascal, who uh, Blaise Pascal, who made a who made a defense for the use of mockery uh, in Christian discourse. Uh, and you know he kind of gave some guidelines of here if you're going to do it, here's how you would here's how you should do it. Here's some guardrails. Uh, but but one thing, particularly, I, I appreciate the last two that Brendan refers to. Is a uh, first of all, he says like mockery obviously should not be your default, your go-to, and it's not mine. I, I think it's actually pretty hard to do well. Um, and uh, but I've been learning. I'm thinking a lot about it. Is there a place? Uh, but he also in the last two he said you you should only mock people who are unreasonable and um up, and, and innocent and powerful. And so you punch up, not down. And I I, I think you think that, I think politically that's actually pretty. There's a whole precedent about that about sat, the use of satire to puncture through uh, oppressive hegemonies and, and, and to also be a relief valve for the people who feel like they're suffering without recourse um, and to also expose folly. So you're, you're trying to expose, you're, you're using, you're ridiculing to expose the ridiculous and especially when it's imposing upon you in, a, in, a, in an oppressive way. And that is a way, and if you could convince your opponents through that use, because these, they're being unreasonable, uh, that is a way to sidestep uh, a, a proclivity to quickly go to physical violence if you feel like that's your own. So it is another outlet. And so I think there's a place for it. Um, and uh, but I, 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 you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I don't really use it very often. I'll, I'll use pretty direct arguments uh, because I, I think it's really hard. Uh, and I think um, uh, I think it's really hard to not go after, first of all, uh one of his other arguments is you primarily go after ideas and not persons. And I think people who uh, traffic in mockery regularly, uh, they, they, go, they go quickly to ad hominem things. And I think there's, that's a real danger. And so you have to avoid that. But I think there's absolutely a place to, to ridicule the ridiculous who are powerful. Yeah. Sh Shadi, what do you think about that mockery? Do you, do you uh, mock people and ideas on Twitter? Why or why not? How do you think about that? Yeah, so to be quite honest, I haven't thought about it a lot myself, especially the particular word mockery. I do use sarcasm. I can be dismissive towards opponents. Is that mockery? Am I sort of, in a way, 
poking fun at their silliness without them even realizing maybe if they don't understand what I'm really saying. I mean, I, I think part of the issue is that the time that we live in is different and it raises, I think, a broader question of whether exceptional times call for unusual. So we could say that mockery is best avoided, but if we live in a time where people are truly ridiculous in a way they haven't been previously, then maybe that does push us to be a little bit harder edged. And I say that because I think that part of how evangelical Christianity, how it's evolved, at least as it seems to me as an outsider who's not Christian, is that there has been a desire to be harder edged, to be to be rough sometimes in the political combat that we're talking about. But I think that's a result of a conclusion that Christianity in some sense is under attack by the secular status quo, that something has changed over the past 10 years where, and I think James, you, you make this argument in one of your pieces that there was a neutral era where Christianity was seen as odd, but there wasn't really any effort to demonize people who chose that way for themselves, where you say that post 2014, it has shifted. If we talk about those who are culturally dominant in our mainstream institutions, there is now an effort to delegitimize and even sometimes demonize what are standard small O orthodox Christian positions. So it seems to me that a lot of your approach, James, is premised on that starting point. It does hinge on whether you think something fundamental has changed in our public discourse where Christians are now on the defensive and they have to fight for their survival, for the survival of the faith in some really basic sense and for the survival and flourishing of Christian ideas. And that requires a different kind of combat. So if, so mockery then at least is, I can see justifications for mockery if that is in fact (laughs) the situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, and and this would be my push on <clears throat> I'd have a number of pushes on on you here James, but I I guess I would I would say the opposite that um mockery is not called for because our our culture is too hard or too antagonistic. I think of um I think of jokes and levity as being appropriate in places where there are high levels of trust and mutual understanding. And uh, so with dear friends, I will, I will mock and make fun of them because <laughs> they know I love them and I'm connected with them. But if it's from someone far away that I would like to, that I'd like to convince mockery, I don't, I don't see how that, that helps me or an embattled Christian church in a, um, in a contested environment. So I, I find levity to be best placed amongst, yeah, relationships of trust rather than antagonism. But Matt, uh, if the goal, so, yeah. but, you know, just just to sort of defend James a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> you told me to fight with James. <laughs> no, this is great. You yeah, know, perfect. <laughs> so I think that um, if the goal is to expose ridiculousness, and mockery is a means to that particular end of shining a light on something that is but shouldn't be. 
if that is the goal and it gets you there, then what's so bad about that? Like, is, isn't that a reasonable goal to expose something as fraudulent or as dangerous or ridiculous? And I think that's uh, one of the one things I would add to that is with the whole, you know, it's, unfor- it's unfortunate that I have to spend a lot of energy on the, the three worlds schema. But, uh, I included it in my first first things article because it was familiar to our audience. And uh, there's something that I do resonate with uh, about it, but I don't over rely on it in my own thinking. I, I've thought a lot about post Christendom for a long time, even in previous publications. And I think what Ren is doing is putting us some kind of like graspable terms on uh, some shifts uh, uh, at a particular stage of post Christendom. And so, but where, where Ren and I would agree is I'm not primarily talking about like, oh, it's so hard for Christians and like we need to grab back power for our own interests. I'm still talking about justice and I'm talking about like, what's good for society and like, um, and uh, not just for us. And I'll get to that in a minute, like maybe some examples of that. But, but I'm also talking about like how the, the broad public has shifted away from Christian moral norms to shape the public order and also, or even moral norms shaped by conceptions of natural law, for instance. Uh, and uh, so it's not just about like a Christian position of privilege. The, they can't, that's not entirely unrelated and like, oh, it's going to be hard for me. The, that, that, the, I'll, I have something related to that. It's more about like, okay, how how is the public order really turned away? And I think post, I think Obergefell really was an accelerator um, uh, because that now Christians I can't really avoid those conflicts. I mean, it, it's creep. It, it does kind of encroach into a lot of th- things. And 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 the, and the Christian view, the traditional Christian view. Uh, I know Christians will, there are certain Christians will disagree, uh, is antithetical to the new, uh, the r- new ruling order on, on sexuality and, and marriage and things like that. And it's viewed as backwards. And to go back to that is, uh, you know, it's, it's now some sort of, uh, uh, you know, anyway, uh, uh, it's, it's anti-progress and, and um, it's opposed to human flourishing and all, the, and all that. So, but I, I also, am, but I'm, one last comment in a may is um, I'm also, I am trying to help Christians prepare uh, not to hate the culture, but to prepare to brace for some pushback that they're probably not used for, used to. And I think the winsome model often does doesn't do enough to prepare them for that. It doesn't mean you'd be a jerk in the light of that. Uh, so it's, I'm not saying mockery all the time, but uh, but but I'm, I'm trying to help strengthen fortitude of like, OK, when pushback comes that you're not ill prepared for it. I actually think if you're better prepared for it, you can be less defensive and less hostile. If you actually think about it ahead of time, it actually enables civil discourse, I believe. Yeah. Shadi, I want to I want to pivot it to you and to um, Muslim responses to this negative world or whatever that you see here in America. How how are um, Muslims responding to this um, shift that we're seeing within the American left? And um, are they do you see them going towards being uh, combative, towards being quiet, towards going along with it, towards engaging in mocking of of these sort of far left movements? What what sort of yeah. parallels or uh, distinctions do you see in this? I mean, as you listen to these two Christians talk about these things, what where does your where does your head go as far as American Muslims? Yeah. Well, first of all. I enjoy listening to Christians so much, so I'm I'm really I'm really enjoying this. But when it comes to um, uh, the American Muslim community, I think we are at a fascinating point. Something is changing. I 
I had written some things about like grumbling within the Muslim community that American Muslims had so closely aligned themselves with progressives and the Democratic Party, and that inevitably this was going to create tensions when it came to moral and religious issues. But the thing is, if you look at the people who are, like the Muslims who are dominant in the public debate, who have the largest platforms, they tend to be younger and progressive. So in some sense, they're not representative of the broader conservative current within American Islam, which is, um, you know, in some ways it's like an elite mass distinction. Um, You know, elites who are hyper-educated tend to be more progressive on some of these social questions. And, you know, I even find it odd that I sort of have to play the role of expressing what conservative Muslims might think, even though I don't really self-define that way. But there is, and I've, I've started to use this term because I think it is what we're seeing, that the elephant in the room, you know, around this time of the midterms, um, and uh, by the time you dear listeners listen to this, <laughs> it will be after. So, I mean, democracy may have ended by then. Um, but uh, I have talked about um, a brown backlash, the Democratic Party is hemorrhaging people of color, Hispanics, uh, certainly, black men to a lesser degree, Arabs, Muslims. Um, and it is really, it is all coming to a head. It's been building and building. And now I think we're actually seeing what this looks like. And some of, you know, both of you might have heard at least bits about the Dearborn revolt. I don't want to exaggerate its importance by calling it a revolt, but it was about books that were in the public school system or a library. I don't, you know, it is a little bit complicated, the details, but certainly there was, there were a couple offending books that had to do with, let's say, rethinking gender identity at a, a fairly young age. And, um, and I think a lot of that is the, it's the, that is what's brought this out. I think for a lot of people, this was um, the straw that broke the camel's back. I feel weird using that um, that proverb uh, in in reference to Arabs and Dearborn, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of people said, "Well, the wokeness, we don't really get that." Um, the racial identifiers, where if you're brown, that means you have to have a certain position, and that you're no longer primarily an individual with his or her own thoughts. You represent a disadvantaged minority. That was anathema to a lot of children of immigrants. That's just not how, how we were raised to think about our country and the, you know, and the evil of the founding and white privilege and atoning for sin. A lot of this was foreign to us. It's not really, you know, um, but then I think a lot of people said, okay, on, on some of the debates around gender identity and public education, this is where we have to draw the line. So I think we're seeing right now in real time what that actually looks like. And you are seeing a more combative element emerging from, uh, you know, parts of the American Muslim community. And I think some of the logic is the same, that this is, that this is existential. This is no longer an abstract debate about secularism or the lack thereof. This is a debate about our kids our families, our communities. And I think that just sharpens people's focus. And that's why I think Democrats made a very big mistake in 
intruding upon such sacred ground. Like that's just something you don't do. You don't mess with that, especially with socially conservative groups. I mean, Hispanics, if you actually pull them on various social issues, they are more conservative than your average white liberal. Um, so, you know, that's going to, that's going to play a role. So I don't know. I'm just, I don't know what all this will mean in the end, but I do see a combative element um, emerging. That said, I don't think that I certainly don't feel under attack as a Muslim in America. I think something good has changed in that we've become more normalized in the political debate. We don't have Republican politicians who are engaging in your kind of perpetual anti-Muslim mm -hmm. baiting, which was a huge issue in 2015 and 2016. We were the calling card of the, the Republican nominee. Like the Muslim ban wasn't just a side issue. It was at the center of his campaign. But the good news is that Trump doesn't really talk about Muslims anymore. It's <laughs> almost like he forgot about us. I'll take it. And I think part of the reason is that wokes, you know, whatever you want to call the woke folks, they've become public enemy number one from the standpoint of the GOP. And that has taken off some some of the some of the um, preoccupation with Muslims and the threat of Sharia and so forth. I mean, how does that, I mean, there's a lot there obviously, but Matt, like, how does that sound to you? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, I think that's really very fascinating. Um, you know, James and I come from, you know, white conservative Christian backgrounds. And so our tribe um, has found itself, you know, sort of belonging to one political party. Um, and so we're always wrestling with how do we, how do we either belong or distance ourselves or correct ourselves or whatever else. But the Islamic community in America is interesting in that um, it was pretty divided politically in the 1990s. You had a good amount of Democratic Muslims and a good amount of Republican Muslims, and then it goes through the you know post 9/11. Um, you have many many Muslims moving to the Democratic Party. And now I, I hear you describing a shift again of some Muslims leaving the Democratic Party for the Republican Party. So I see Muslims experiencing a lot more political movement and estrangement over the last 30 years in America, whereas um, sort of conservative Christians or evangelical Christians have sort of been sitting you know, within the Republican Party ever since Jimmy Carter. And that creates a lot of problems for us as well. And so, I mean, there's there's some interesting connections, but also just very differences within the story. I don't know, James, what do you think when you when you hear Shaddy go through that that story there about uh, wokeness and the way in which it's yeah. sort of shaking loose some Muslims from within that Democratic community? Yeah, I, I would advise... Um, also, listeners, if they haven't heard it, Joe Rigney gave a great talk. At, he's probably one of my favorite talks at NatCon. And kind of added to this conversation that's relevant to Shadi's point is um, one of the major shifts he sees in uh, recent years is um, where he resituates kind of Ren's framework is, is focusing in on like natural law or the Tao, like see, kind of appealing to like C.S. Lewis's abolition of man. And... Um, where a major shift he understands is kind of a complete rejection of some of those fundamental uh, conceptions with that the, in many ways evangelical Christians were a vanguard of in America. But how that, how might that, okay, so if, if primarily like the left moves away from, 
for instance, like the what is a woman question. Like, you know, we're getting into some territory uh, of like really questioning basic realities. Um, and how does that affect religious communities, religious minority communities as well? How might that cha- change some of their political affiliations? I'm interested to watch that. Um, and uh, is there some new co-belligerencies co- that emerge from this? And how might that be beneficial? I mean, I'm not a doomer. Uh, you know, uh, I think there's reasons to be hopeful if that happens. I mean, how could that be positive for Muslim-Christian relations in America? And uh, might there be reasons for hope there? So, yeah, I, I, when I look at some of the shifts, I'm not, it's not all, it's not all negative. Some of it could be, there could be some reasons for glimmers of hope in the midst of this. And so the things that Shadi's sharing, if there's a, if there's kind of a, a reawakening of kind of a social traditionalism that, per, that creates some new types of co-belligerencies uh, uh, among previously part, uh, groups, uh, groups that were previously more fundamentally at odds, it's reason for it be helpful. Yeah, and I think that we can get to this in a moment if we want to talk more about the Islamic context. But mm-hmm. one thing I wrote in my First Things essay, and we can include a link to that in the show notes, which... Uh, James was actually um, the editor of when he was at uh, First Things. So he's, you know, we had some interesting, um, yeah, I think we both liked the argument and it turned out really well. <laughs> but, but you know, I think that there, there is something odd about Muslims have had a long experience and experimentation with what we might call post-liberalism. And I would even say that Muslims in the Middle East and beyond we're at the vanguard of, first of all, seeing the fundamental weaknesses of the of liberalism, and then thinking about what alternatives to liberalism might actually look like. I mean, obviously the context is different because when we talk about Islamic post-liberalism, we're talking about um, an approach that is is going to inevitably be more legalistic because the role of Islamic law. In, in the kind of Islamic imagination, there obviously is no equivalent to that in the in the Christian imagination. So when Christians do post-liberalism, they don't really have an anchor in, a strong anchor in clear legal alternatives. Now, um, that could be a good thing because some people don't want to go down a very legalistic path and, you know... Um, and there's certainly weaknesses with thinking about Islam as primarily a legal doctrine. And that's where I argue that some of these Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood became too legally oriented and too state oriented. And there was something about modernity and the modern nation state that made a growing number of Muslims think in terms of the state applying new legal codes. And that is not how the Islamic tradition was in the, in pre-modernity um, law was decentralized. There was a, there was legal pluralism. This, the executive didn't really imp, the executive implemented laws that weren't necessarily devised by the executive. It was devised by the jurists who had a considerable degree of autonomy and independence from the state. So the state you know, it's worth just bringing up the fact that I think all of these religious traditions are struggling with the fact of dominant states and states that aren't that are that want to domesticate religion. 
they see religion as as a threat in some way and and religions are struggling to respond effectively. So I think that's just one thing um, that I would put out there. But before we get into that, I do want to raise a question which applies, I think, just to, ever, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, about what are the goals of politics? I mean, so you said, James, that the goal, the goal is justice and we shouldn't lose sight of that. In my own engagements with Matt over the past few years, I've my sense is that Matt is very interested in, you know, uh, spreading the gospel and, uh, and I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing this, but, you know, converting, converting people to Christianity is good. And, and there's a, and that, that's, (laughs) and that's a different way of approaching interactions with people than a focus on justice. So I'm, I'm just also, cause that also relates to how Muslims operate politically. Like are most like are Muslims trying to, well, obviously in the Middle East, they're not trying to convert people to Islam because most people are already Muslim. So justice does figure much more prominently in Islamic discourse as a goal. And then the question is, can the state bring that about or not? Yeah. And I, this intersects, James, with a number of things you've been talking about in terms of how Christians behave politically in America, because um, there's this discussion of um, essentially Christians need to be really nice when they're in politics so that more people will want to be Christians. So if, if Christians engage in political fights, that's bad for their brand and that's bad for evangelism. And you are are you have made a, a critique of that, right? Um, you want you want Christians to go into politics thinking primarily about politics. Uh, maybe you can um, correct yeah. me there, but um, yeah. So maybe you can respond to Shadi around that. <laughs> uh, well, Shadi uh, presented a, a dichotomy here. That when, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I also want people to know Jesus and. Uh, try to share the gospel in my life quite often. Um, but if we're going to do politics, I just want to think clearly about politics. You know, it's like, if I'm going to do accounting, I don't want to be thinking about, you know, how many people are going to be converted through my accounting. I want to get the numbers right. I mean, right. Like what, what are the spheres? Sphere sovereignty, right? I mean, and so what are, what are the, what are the pillars, the pillarization? These are all Kyperian concepts. And so how do you do it well? And, uh, but also, yeah, I, I think the one of the reasons I've, I've said that the winsome frame for politics is misguided is it can it confuses politics, which I've already discussed that. But the other one is I think it's a little bit too certain about what will ultimately turn people off in the long run. I mean, I, I don't I don't think we can augur that as well as we think we can. Um, uh, for I mean, it, and we need bra- brave reformers. So often reformers throughout church history, it, first of all, in scripture, people who are prophetic of a sort. Uh, aligned with God's will. Uh, and so, again, the certainty question, for sure, we have to be careful uh, because that's we don't have the same level of access to the divine uh, as a prophet did. Um, but then also just reformers throughout church history were often received uh, very with strong pushback. But eventually they, they, they often won out in the long run. But if they buckled quickly because they were, you know, if John Knox, for instance, buckled quickly because people thought he was a little bit too anti-winsome, you know, you wouldn't have the reform in Scotland. Um, and I'm a PCA pastor and we wouldn't have the PCA. Um, and so, 
Uh, but okay, so so instance, we can't be too certain about actually how I think people will long run respond. For instance, like you know, um, I just don't. I think the tra- the, the 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 transition issue, the the trans issue, a transgender issue. I, I think it'd be interesting in the in the long run, uh, like where detransitioners were turned. Um, and I think we're getting we're seeing a lot of um, detransitioners share their stories. And there's a great, actually, there's a really great uh, article in the Gospel Coalition about someone sharing this. This this person who had transitioned was still didn't solve their depression, and they were and and, and the person interviewing them was asking like, what could I have done, you know, uh, previous to this, like to to be of service to you, like, and the the person who had detransitioned was like, look, just please keep saying the truth even when it offends, like please keep saying it. it. That would have helped me and it will help others. And so I just think like we just don't know in the long run what will be effective for turning people off or on to our gospel message. Like they might look back and like, who were the people speaking up against some of these insane things? And I want to hear, I want to hear that group more. Right. Um, Because everybody wants, they look at that picture of like the Nazi rally and there's one person not with their hand up. Everybody thinks they would be that person, but it's a big cost to be that person. And and I think, uh, so you need to brace for the pushback. Uh, and, And in the long run, you might win people over because they saw courage in the moment. But, but, you know, so on that, how, how can you be so certain about what, what is considered insane or unjust or evil from a Christian standpoint? So, um, you know, there's a number of different issues that are tied to questions of gender identity, but you can also take different positions on abortion. Um, if, if, if sin enters everything, and mm-hmm. we did talk in our last episode about Abraham Kuyper and how sin is very central in Kuyper's imagination. And that set, sin means that it's not just that we can't access divine truth like the prophets did. It's that we are, we are, we, like we're, there's a weakness. There is a depravity that actually makes the gap perhaps more larger than we're willing to acknowledge. So, if we fall so short, if we're broken by sin and that sort of introduces an imperfection that we have to be constantly self-aware about, then isn't it possible that we're misjudging what is just and what is not, what is good and what is evil on a particular issue? Like how clearly there are some Christians who have a different view on some of the, some of the trans rights issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Maybe they they don't support quote unquote gender affirming care quite to the same extent as progressives, but they're somewhere in between. Like, isn't it possible that we just don't know exactly what the right answer is on some of these contested questions, and we have to we have to keep open the possibility that we're not getting it completely right? Yes, <laughs> I mean, that is the gambit of of created existence, particularly created fallen existence, and yet I don't think that. Uh, absolves us of making the argument and getting involved. And, and so, but leaving open the possibility that you could be wrong. Um, and, uh, but I think that's kind of the job of like a public intellectual, for instance, is putting the argument out there and seeing and continuing the conversation. And, uh, but, you know, I'm always open to being corrected and being, you know, and, and being wrong about things. And I think we all have to be but uh, I don't think that should undermine the project from the outset. So G.K. Chesterton, you know, famous, he has a great quote about this, right? It's like, uh, the modern world has placed humility in the wrong place or placed modesty in the wrong place. We used to be modest about our grasp of truth, and now we're modest about the, the fact of truth that, that exists at all. And, uh, and he says that's a false modesty. And so we, 
absolutely keep keep open that we are seeing it from a limited perspective and, and open to correction, and yet get involved, get in the game, and make the argument uh, in in as much as you see it's grounded in the the clear and consistent teaching of of scripture uh, and how it's been received and handed on through church church tradition. And, uh, and so if you're, you know, getting at variance, you know, getting to the periphery on that stuff too much, you know, that should, um, uh, you know, relativize your commitment to this. Uh, but, um, if, if, if you feel like you're pretty, pretty much in line with the, the broad stream of, of Christian tradition as a Christian, uh, I think you can be pretty confident uh, about that. So sure. I mean, there are people who might, uh, more progressive Christians who have a different view about human embodiment and the genders. But I, I think that they're the minor, they're very much the minority port in, in Christian theology. It doesn't mean they're wrong, but uh, I, I don't want to make a, a false equivalency here. It's like, well, we're equally right or wrong, and uh, we should have the same level of confidence. Uh, uh, we can speak with a little bit more confidence than that minority report, I think. Yeah, so I'd love to close, like, I'm trying to come up with those more affirming, more affirming things, because, you know, I I have those those difficulties as well with the things that you've written here, but... I think for me, the thing that I'm most grateful for is this clear recognition from you, James, that politics involves antagonism. And uh, the fact that there are deep differences in our political life should not shock us uh, and should not, um, it just should not, it should not surprise us. And so we must go into these, these deep differences with a clear eyed understanding that we're actually not going to fix this through, um, and we're not all going to find unity. Um, our task is to uh, present as best we can um, our our grasp onto the truth and 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 seek justice as best we can. But understand that you know within this present age, um, there are going to be real differences, and that's sort of a core value of what Shadi and I are getting after in these conversations. Is that. Um, Deep difference is not a problem that we are going to solve, um, but it is something we can explore. It's something we can contest, um, but it ought not sort of terrify us and, and cause us to either run away or try to. Um... And and so I guess my my last question, maybe we, we I know we need to wrap up here soon. Is where did that come from from you, uh, as far as a, a willingness to engage deep difference? Um, and not being surprised or terrified by it. Because so often Americans, um, they talk about the polarization of our culture as this just shocking and surprising thing that um, we need to quickly fix. Um, so it, within your own story, that that might be an interesting way to, to bring close to this. How is it that you um, don't respond in that way to deep difference? I just want to warn. I just want to warn you all. I'm not going to let James off. There's something else I want to bring up. So just a <laughs> word of warning. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, a few different threads. I mean, it didn't come easily. I mean, there's a lot of, um, uh, in you know, if we were getting like real deep and personal backstory, there's a lot of um, uh, dysfunction in my family background. I did, you, you mentioned like we had we come from conservative Christian backgrounds. Not me uh, in my childhood. I mean, definitely in my adulthood as a PCA pastor. But I didn't grow up in the church and. Grew up with a lot of family dysfunction, and I grew up very, very poor, and so that also has influenced a lot of my views, as well. But also made me—I I didn't grow up seeing difference modeled well, disagreement modeled well, and I actually 
had had a very until recently I think I've grown a lot in this by God's grace had a lot of defensiveness and so every time I would get in an argument I would flee and run away and and I got, actually have gotten stiffed up quite a bit from a few different places uh, one I mentioned my in laws. Uh, again, extremely close with them. And we are, will never, I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to convince them on anything. Uh, uh, and yet uh, we're going to go see them next week. I mean, I uh, love them. And uh, we, we worked through quite a bit. Uh, but the other thing is I, um, oh, and I know someone you keeping uh, an, an agonism. Another word would be like political agonism, right? Not just antagonism, but, you know, which is, I think I heard you guys mention William Connolly. Uh, and so I'd read uh, one, of, one of the books that influenced me quite a bit was Christian D. Johnston's book on pluralism. And, yes. And she engages uh, William Connolly quite a bit. And again, I'm a post-liberal of a sort, and so she would critique kind of a liberal na- naivety and sees Con- Connolly as a uh, constructive con- conversation partner in that, right? I mean, we can't just paper over our deep differences. They're real. Uh, and so uh, I found that really helpful. But the other thing is I was a missionary. I- I've been a pastor and missionary for a long time. And um, one-, one of the best things I did was spending a summer in Greece doing uh, call it campus evangelism and meeting students on campus. And I, one of my favorite things, I went there, and you'll love this, I think, is I went there in, I guess, 2008, summer of 2008. And so in the middle of the election and Obama was about to become president. And uh, but it, it was like, you know, at the tail end of the Bush presidency and, you know, the world was up. And, I mean, he just destroyed the world and <laughs> the world economy is a mess. And we're in, inevitable, in term, you know, interminable wars. And and uh, students, when I was coming up to meet college students to talk about Jesus with them, they would also they would always start like, so they often thought I was Greek because I looked kind of Greek. Um, so often they'd start speaking to me in Greek and, you know, I'd have to say, no, I can't speak Greek. But they'd like, tell me what you think about George Bush. And I'm like, I literally just met you, dude. Like, I can't like we're going to get to the deepest hostile arguments. And then I'd watch my Greek, these friends that we'd ma- made in Greece. I watched like they would get in these like, you know, uh, really strong disagreements, even with each other and then with us. And then they would end up like, hey, let's go get beers later. Uh and I just thought about it, that, like, you know, what's the difference here? Uh, in America, we hold our ideas so close to identity. And I do think there's like kind of an American Gnosticism there. I mean, like our, and Carl Truman, similar arguments, like our ideas are who we are uh, or our desires are who we are. And, uh, and, and therefore you can't, you can't touch this. And if you touch it and we disagree, you've, you've inflicted violence upon me. And I think like, we all should probably, that's why the mockery thing maybe actually could be helpful. We all should probably loosen up a little bit. And uh, and, and my Greek friends helped me with that. So maybe I'll leave it there. And then Shadi wants okay, to Okay, I'm more. not going to lie. I love that. that <laughs> I, I knew you would. That is just like, that's Shadi bait <laughs> right there. Um, and that's, you know, sometimes I, I knew that we could do it with you, James, because, um, you know, I think all of us, uh, perhaps more me and you are are happy warriors when it comes to, um, you know, being in contentious debates and not taking things personally. I do worry, though, with most people that once you start introducing too much spiciness or um, disagreement, that there is like even if they don't show it, you can almost sense them closing up. And we do, and you know, Matt likes to mention a passage from. William Connolly about hunching, the hunching up of one's shoulders when you feel threatened by an idea that you disagree with. And I think all of us have to find ways to get over that, transcend that. Um, and I, I love this idea that Americans, like we can't separate between individuals and their ideas where clearly your Greek friends are able to do that. 
Um, so it's partly, it's, it's cultural. Um, um, I mean, I love America and I love some Americans, but, um, <laughs> but clearly like we have, we have a cultural context that sometimes makes it harder for us to let go of things. Also, I think we're a nation of believers. We believe in the American idea. So we're not just like debating issues. We're de- we're debating Americanism where no one's really debating like what it means to be Greek. That's yeah. not like, so that's great about America that we have something that transcends ethnicity and origin, but there's also a danger in that we, you know, we're introducing an ideal, everything is ideological because everyone is debating what America actually is. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask you a question because you, <laughs> you have mentioned post-liberalism several times yeah. and I have as well. And I, I would have been curious to sketch out like what the post-liberal future <laughs> actually looks like that, but obviously we're not going to get into all that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, I do hope we get a chance to talk about that in more detail in a different context, because I think you are one of the most interesting theoreticians and theologians when it comes to thinking seriously about the post-liberal future. Because when I challenge people on this, they oftentimes struggle. This is always the issue. It is very easy to criticize the way mm-hmm. things are. We know that something is wrong with the current format. What liberalism has become, more and more people are realizing that something something has cracked. But then yep. you talk about the alternatives and then you yep. sort of hit a wall. I mean, sometimes you know, yep. the answer I hear is that the alternative you know, Sabbath laws. Like that's not enough for like the post-liberal imagination. Like there's gotta be ground zero. Yeah. It's the starting point. Yeah. Yeah. The starting point. Exactly. Yeah. I I would say like one, I I can't sketch it out and and I'm, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not like one of the, the, uh, main persons who's like very much articulating a robust vision of a post-liberal future, but I am involved. I've been involved in this conversation for over a decade. I mean, so I'm conversing with the literature and I gravitate towards a lot of it. Um, but um, but I would say like a main question that animates, maybe you'll relate to this study and it could, it, it could inspire a future conversation. A main question yeah. that animates a lot of my research that I haven't come up with a, 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 an answer for that I'm satisfied with yet is, is it possible to uh, support like liberal structures and institutions and structural arrangements without subscribing to a liberal anthropology? That, that's a main question I'm often thinking and I'm wanting to wrestle that out. Maybe you could help me. Uh, I want to say yes, uh, but it seems complicated because I, I don't want to give up like constitutionalism, rule of law, even some version of separation of powers and things like that. Like those types of things, like I still want to subscribe to and endorse, but I, I worry that they they do are, are kind of feed upon and perpetuate a liberal anthropology. And uh, and I'm, I'm not convinced on that. Okay. I also love what you just said, because that is something worth exploring and interrogating. I mean, yeah, is our liberal institutions possible without a liberal anthropology? I think the jury is still out. I guess we'll have to find out. <laughs> and on that note, let me just say thank you so much, James. I, this was great. Yeah, thanks this for was having great. me. And to, for you to be our first guest, you know, yeah, it's, it's an, an honor. honor that you graced us with that with your presence (laughs) and I, yeah, this was great. Really enjoyed it. So thank you. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much, James. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening to Zealots at the Gate. If you've liked what you've heard, 
Check out the podcast Intellectual Seedbed at comment.org. You'll find fascinating articles from both Shaddy and James and some mediocre ones from me. <laughs> um, we want to hear from you. Connect with us over at Twitter at Shaddy Hamid and at Matthew Kamink, or you can write to us, um, zealots at comment.org, and you can expect a cheerful, sincere exchange with winsome notes from Matthew Kamink. <laughs> our thanks as well to our sponsor, Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. Zealous at the Gate is hosted by Comet Magazine, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Ann Snyder. I'm Matthew Kamink, and with me here is... Fatty Hamid. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye.